0: My name is Eric Bowe and welcome to the Primal Shopper podcast. This podcast is for marketers, entrepreneurs, and academics interested in understanding why we shop the way we do. My goal is to focus on the primal motivations driving our behaviors and how to apply the learnings to improve your marketing. Don't worry about taking notes. I will include any links in the show notes. Also, there's plenty of bonus content on Primal Shopper. Finally, If you want an in-depth perspective, my book, Primal Shopper, is available on, on Amazon and other sites. So let's get on with the show. This is the second of four episodes I am doing in conjunction with the release of my book, Primal Shopper. In the previous episode, I talked about the discovery I had with others to find the shopper DNA or primal motivations within all of us. I like to refer to that more as the what. Today, this episode, is more about the why. Why do we actually shop the way we do? In the last episode, I talked about the four primal DNA strands, brand, wallet, time. But each one of those has dimensions to them. And the output of writing this book, researching, interviewing, and everything else led to 18 shopping principles that cover not only those three DNA strands, but also social. So today I'd like to just touch on some of the insights around that, a few stories of how some of these insights or shopper principles came to be, and then finally some insights that didn't make the book. In this episode specifically I'll talk about when we feel the deal. So deal seeking is more about feeling, how do you feel the deal, and just as importantly when don't you. I'll talk about when life causes brand amnesia, Further, for The Love of Brick and Mortar, which is more about the staying power of retail as opposed to the imminent demise that is constantly predicted in the press. And finally, I'll wrap up this episode talking about a topic I I refer to as Beware of the Brand Governor, which I get into social and its impact on the shopper DNA. With that said, let's get on with the show. The second part of the book is titled 18 Primal Principles. As you can imagine, it's 18 chapters, each one specifically looking at a different aspect of why we shop the way we do. There's several chapters about brand, chapters about wallet, time, and also chapters about social. So in this episode, what I wanted to do today is sort of cover four of those different topics. But let me first begin by just reading the intro to this second section of the book. Like many chapters in the book, I begin it with a quote. This quote's from Stephen Hawking. One can't predict the weather more than a few days in advance. I like this and it's profound because in marketing today, there is no shortage of data. We talk about big data. We talk about a regression analysis. We talk about correlations. This is no different than the weather. And how far can they predict ahead of time? They have over 100 years worth of data But often, they only can predict the weather several days in advance. With that said, what I'd like to do is read the intro part to the second section of the book. And I write, where do you go to find out what the weather will be like tomorrow? There are many sources for weather forecasts. You could go online to weather.com, check the weather app on your mobile phone, tune into the weather report on your local news station, or maybe check the geeky weather station you have installed in your backyard, like I did. All our valid sources of information to assist you in figuring out what weather will be tomorrow. Now, where do you go to change the weather? That's right. Where can you go to change the weather? Seems improbable, and maybe it is for the weather. However, in marketing, we create stimuli to change the shopper weather. We believe we can market to the shopper and increase our revenue by getting them to buy our product rather than the competitions. We believe we can affect the future in a positive manner. We believe we are rainmakers. If you're going to be a rainmaker, you need to go beyond the what and understand the why. Rainmakers are able to take the pulse of their targets, motivations, and their desires. The rainmaker is constantly learning why something works as opposed to what worked in the past. In the first section of the book, I focused on the preferences of a shopper, the what. In this section, I have in-depth look into the why. For example, why does brand matter at some times and not at others? Why is the deal more than a price, but actually a physiological stimulus? Why is there a love or hate relationship with the retail environment? Why does word amount drive some purchases and it has no effect on others? While the what is interesting, the why is much more important. It is an actual insight that can be leveraged in designing successful marketing campaigns and tactics. The why is also bigger than just exploring the shopper DNA discussed in part one. There are facets governing the shopper behavior. One of these is decoding the shopper journey. The path to purchase is not a series of sources rather is a series of decisions. This shopper centric perspective provides an insightful method to understand the journey and why a product is purchased or not. Another topic I will discuss in detail is passion, which I touched on earlier. A shopper's passion can change the preference depending on the emotional bond with a product brand or lifestyle interest. Finally, I will look at a series of environmental forces affecting shopper preferences. In a perfect world, a shopper's default preference will guide their purchase decisions. But since we don't live in a perfect world, it is worth reviewing different environmental stimuli. These stimuli force shoppers to shop against their preferences, increasing stress and anxiety. With that short intro, it sort of kicks off not only the chapter in the book, but also this podcast. So I'm going to talk about four different things. The first one I want to talk about is Feel the Deal. Let me begin this topic by talking about a story, a story about ice cream. Now, when you look at a deal, deals come in many ways. And I thought ice cream is a great example because a lot of people get ice cream and they understand usually the pricing behind it, especially if you grocery shop on a regular basis. So if I told you I got ice cream for a dollar, what would you think? Would you think that's a great deal or would you think I bought some crappy ice cream that was full of air? Probably the latter more than the former because usually you don't buy, you know, a one point five quart or whatever the standard size of ice cream is for one dollar. Typically it costs a lot more than that. However, what if I told you I bought Briar's moose tracks for a dollar? You'd probably say, Hey, that's a great deal. How did you do it? And you'd be very interested in understanding did you use coupons? Was there a deal at Kroger or Meyer or somewhere around you? And you start getting into that deal seeking mentality of how did you do that? And that's an important part of this. I know it's just a simple story about ice cream, but it sort of illustrates how the deal works. And there's two key components of it. The first one is perceived quality. The second is expected price. So let's start with perceived quality. Back to our ice cream. Ice cream perceived quality has different layers to it. Some of it's just generic, like the product, in this case, ice cream. Some of it is an elaboration of the type, for example, moose tracks or cookies and cream. And then a third layer on it is the type of brand where you can have Breyers, Turkey Hill, Ben & Jerry's. Each one in your mind has a different level of quality, especially if you eat ice cream on a regular basis. Now, let's flip to the other side and the expected price. With price, there's different dynamics going on. And price, first of all, is not the deal. Price is what you actually pay. The deal is a function of several dynamics that affect the price probably one of the most obvious one is, is it on sale or do you have a coupon? But it goes beyond that because for me to understand whether you got a deal or not, I'd have to have a price in mind. Now, if you're listening to the ice cream story and you never buy ice cream and I told you you got it for a dollar, you don't know if that's a good deal or not because you never buy it. However, if you're used to spending or buying ice cream, you usually spend on buyers, let's say about $5, you see it as a good deal for that reason. And that idea of do you remember it gets into the different ways in which people recognize prices. The first one is memory. If you buy a product enough, typically you remember what the price is. A classic example I use on a regular basis is gas. And I often ask people, you know, what is the price a gallon right now? And in, in the Detroit area, it's roughly about $269 a gallon. I remember that because I saw it on the way home. Now, the interesting thing about memory is it often affects your energy or angst based on did you feel or not. So, for example, if I wake up, go out and realize it's now three dollars a gallon, I would have been ticked off because I should have fueled yesterday. However, if I go out there and I find out it's 220 a gallon, it's sort of like I go I should have waited. So often the idea of memory will play on your emotions especially if you have a registered price or memorable price in mind relative to that purchase. Now, we don't buy a lot of products on a regular basis. So the other way to recognize prices is through the experience of shopping for something. An example of this is through a study I did with garage door openers. With garage door openers, you buy them roughly once to every 12 to 15 years, assuming you're a homeowner. So when you go to buy it, you know, you might have a price in mind, but often you're going, I don't know, maybe it's $125. So you go out and start looking and you realize that maybe you find some for $100, you find some for $175. And then you find others that are $250 and $300. Again, I'm referring to garage door openers you install versus having somebody install for you. Now, you start to wonder, I really want to not spend, I really don't want to spend a lot of money here. But why is $125 and one is $250? So what happens is you start looking into the different brands, the different functions. Again, garage door opener is your product. The types could be the different drives. You know, you have chain drive versus belt drive. You have different functions, like some are wireless, some are Bluetooth. Different things happen there. So you you start to understand the difference between a $125 one and a 250 one. You start to get to know the players too. You have Genie out there, who is probably the most well-known, but you have Chamberlain, you have Craftsman, you have LiftMaster, all of these are out there and you probably don't even know these brands unless you looked up in your garage and looked at your garage door opener before you went off and bought. And this sort of gets into the dynamics of, really, what should I end up paying? If you're in the market long enough, and a lot of people aren't because usually, usually they just want to replace their garage door opener, you sort of get the price sensitivity. So you may realize, hey, the Chamberlain at Lowe's is about 210 bucks, But then you go online on Amazon, you realize you can get the same model for $160. Hey, I'm getting a deal now. But that deal you wouldn't have recognized from the beginning. It took a while within your shopper journey to develop the price knowledge, the price memory, for you to recognize a deal. So these are the two different types of ways people look at what the expected price should be, either through memory or or it's actually through the experience of shopping itself. In the end, what happens is you're looking at the overall perceived quality and the expected price. The combination of these two dictate whether you got a deal or not, not only for yourself, but actually perceived by others too. So if you're gonna go bragging, I've got a $250 Chamberlain garage door opener and somebody may look at you and go, well, I got mine for 180. You really didn't get a great deal and actually it could be quite deflating anyway. What am I looking at this whole idea of field the deal? One of my favorite single store retail strategies is what TJ Maxx does. And Marshall's does something similar too. And what they do is add their tags for the products. They will show you the original price that you can compare at other stores. And then they show the TJ Maxx price. This works very well because many of the items they're selling at TJ Maxx, you may not know what the typical price would be for the product. So what TJ Maxx does very well is they say, look, you don't have to look. We'll do the deal seeking for you. Here's what you usually will pay at other stores. Here's what you pay at TJ Maxx. Look, it's a deal. One last part about feeling the deal is that often if you really feel you got a great deal, you'll share it. An example of this is fuel perks. And I don't care if you're looking at Kroger, Winn-Dixie. If you feel you've got a great deal, you're likely to share it. If you were to look on Twitter and look for either fuel perks or fuel rewards, what you're going to find is that this iconic photo of the pump showing the price per gallon that the person paid. And many times it is a dollar or more less than what people may be paying currently for gas. So that sort of concludes Feel the Deal. The next one I want to talk about, the next topic is the Life Stage Eraser. And there's a quote from Stephen Wright that I have at the front of this chapter I like. And he sort of... His quote is, right now I'm having amnesia and deja vu at the same time. This is interesting because the Life Stage Eraser is about how you learn about brands. It is hard for us to assess when we first saw a brand, when we first bought a brand, are we are loyal to some brands and not to other, unless something stark happens into your life. And something stark happened in my life. It's about a trip I had to Sweden and a flipping volcano that sort of stopped all air traffic for about a week you remember back in i think it was about 2010 if my memory serves me right i was in sweden for the relaunch of Saab, so i was in troll and the whole week was going fine stuff like that and i was scheduled to leave and somebody came into the room and said hey all flights are canceled because of an ice or icelandic volcano at first i thought this was a joke are you kidding me we're not flying because of some volcano a thousand miles away Well, it turns out it wasn't just Sweden. It's pretty much all Northern Europe air travel was grounded for about a week. At first, you figured, oh, this will be a day or two and you'll be out of there. But after a couple of days, it felt like Groundhog Day. You know, the movie with Bill Murray. I was waking up every day and it seemed like the same thing. I was waking up in a room in Sweden, surrounded by Ikea. It was just bizarre. After a while, I needed to get a few things and I decided, well, since I'm here, I might as well go running because in Trollhutten at the time, it was there, it was April, so there was no snow and I just needed to do some type of physical activity. But I didn't bring any running gear. So I found a couple of guys I knew there that worked at Saab and we went out to the mall. And when I started going around the running store or the sports store, I first realized I don't know the store. I didn't recognize the brands. I didn't find many brands I recognized. So it became this process of Not only figuring out what to buy, but assessing which brands I should buy or not. So I found myself doing several things. One is asking the people I was with, well, what do you think of these brands and stuff like that? Also looking at what other people are wearing and trying to figure out, well, what is the more popular brands here? And again, I'm trying to mitigate my risk. I didn't want to buy a pair of bad shoes or running gear that wasn't going to last. That experience profoundly affected me going, well, this is interesting because If we have brand amnesia, how would we actually rediscover brands? Fast forward about a year or two, and I was working on a project for Chevrolet. And the people from MRM came in and they were talking about this idea of the life stage eraser. And I go, well, that sounds really cool. What is it? And they're talking about when people within a life stage move from one to the next. Often you erase brands and you rediscover them. So, for example... If you're in your 20s, you're buying a sedan or a coupe on a regular basis, and all of a sudden you wake up one morning, usually you don't wake up one morning, but you wake up one morning, you realize that you have kids. You're starting to look for a CUV. You're starting to look for a minivan. But how much do you really know about them? So what typically happens is you broaden out your brand set to consider things that you haven't in the past because your previous brand experience has been about coupes and sedans. If you think about this concept, the Life Stage Eraser, Many people listening to this podcast have probably lived it, and it usually deals with when you move from one major lifestyle to another, like when you move from college to your first job and move to your first apartment, when you get married, definitely when you have kids, also when your kids leave and you become an empty nester again. I'm sure a story every new parent can identify with is the first time you walked into the baby store and looked at all of the things that they had available to purchase. I still remember my first time, walked into Babies R Us, And I I still remember staring at these bottles and there must've been 20 different types of bottles. I have no clue. Some were straight, some were bent, some had different nipples on them, stuff like that. It, it, you really didn't know and compound that with everything else. You, You had to buy a crib, you had to buy a stroller. Every one of these brand decisions, every one of these purchase decisions was done with naivety. But what did you typically do? Well, you probably leaned on other people who already had kids, If you're my brother who uh, really lives through consumer reports, you are probably on that. Or you're leaning on the salesperson to provide you guidance. This is very interesting when you look at it from a marketer's perspective of when brand all of a sudden is rediscovered, how do you take advantage of that? Because there are those opportunities throughout different life stages. So that's it for Life Stage Eraser. Let's move on to the third topic for the love of brick and mortar. Okay. I, I, as late as today, I mean, I was reading some stuff today online and then again, the imminent death of brick and mortar is out there. There's 12 more stores or 12 more brands that are shuttering stores. Payless is leaving. You've got Kmart and Sears on life support. Now, the interesting thing here is retail brands have always gone away. So you can look at that. You could obsess at that. And I think in a future podcast, I do want to touch on this and go into a little bit of why some are surviving and why some not. But in the vein of that, instead of looking at who is dying, I like to look at who is thriving and look at why. For example, Target is doing well. Target has been a department store that's been around forever. I still remember when I got into the business in the mid-80s, I worked on Kmart, and we always looked at Target, who was really growing at the time, as who we wanted to be. Obviously, Kmart is not Target, and it fell by the wayside in so many ways, and obviously they are on life support. However, let's talk more about Target. You don't have to look any further than Target tweets to find out really why there is a love for the store. And I talked a little bit about the $100 example in my first podcast of how we found through the diaries people where when they talked about Target, they often complained in a bizarre jubilant manner that I can't get out of Target without spending a hundred bucks. But here's a few tweets out there to sort of illustrate this. The first tweet is from Brooke. I went to Target to get my mom a birthday card and left having spent hundred dollars on random blank. I won't read the last word. Kaylee said, me and my mom went to Target today because you needed a laptop charger and we spent over a hundred dollars and didn't even get a laptop charger. Finally, Emily tweeted out, I went to Target literally to only get a gallon of milk. And I walked out with two bags and I spent a hundred dollars. How do they do this to me every time? This fascinating with Target because of the energy they have, their design DNA of how people just thrive in there. And I think this is where you sort of look at, are some st- retailers gonna die? Are they gonna show their stores without a doubt? But who's gonna survive? And there's three primary motivations I think that really drive when it, why retailers are successful in today's market. The first one is the love of the find. I already talked about TJ Maxx, Marshall, Target. People go in there and they talk about what they find. Another one is problem solving. Ace Hardware is, you know, it's a staying force in the many neighborhoods because what do they do? Well, when I have a problem at home, I go in there and they have, I think how they refer to themselves now, the Helpful Folks whatever either way when i have a problem i usually go there i don't go to lowe's or home depot because it's just too big it's too ominous now if i'm doing projects eh, well then you know i'm less likely to go to his hardware i'm more likely to go to lowe's or home depot so you sort of get an idea of the second idea there of problem solving the last motivation is celebrate my passion you could look at this from and everything from a tech store to a brand store to an outdoor enthusiast store. And uh, two good examples of the outdoor enthusiast is Bass Pro and Cabela's. In Michigan, for the longest time, there was only one Cabela's and people made a pilgrimage to there on a regular basis because it celebrated their passion. They wanted to go. They shared a lot when they got back, which then prompted more people to go and be a part of the Cabela's experience. To wrap this topic up, where do I think this whole demise will end up between the brick and mortar stores and the online stores. Well, you don't have to look any further than the 50-50 split of love and hate in every retail survey we did. Meaning that about 50% loved the brick and mortar experience. They loved shopping. Typically these were journey shoppers. And about 50% hated it. These were mission shoppers. They wanted to get in and out and on with life. If this is consistent, you can see down the road that 50% would be the ceiling, but that also means you're looking at a lot of retail moving online and a lot more store shuttering. Will all the stores close? No, not really. The smarter ones already have moved to multiple platforms where they're looking at how do I appease the mission shopper, meaning how do I make buying from them easy, and how do I actually thrill the journey shopper that comes in the store. So you're going to get things like delivery, pickup, and then still your in-store experience. The brands that actually can do all three of these have the best chance to succeed. This is why it's no wonder Amazon is looking for, how do I create a brick and mortar presence? Well, they bought Whole Foods, they're looking at Amazon Go because they realize there isn't just one type of shopper out there. Not everybody's just gonna do e-commerce and pickup. There is still merit with having a brick and mortar store. The question is though, how many stores can actually survive? So that sort of wraps up for the love of brick and mortar. The last topic I want to talk about is the beware of the brand governor idea. And this is really talks about social. To kick this off, let me tell you a story about Ford when I was there in about 2008. And there's this classic graph they had that was floating around Ford at the time. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but I can directionally tell you what it did. What it was was a Venn diagram and in the Venn diagram, They had a bubble for people who shopped only domestic, a bubble for people who only shopped imports, and then the cross-section was for people who bought both. Roughly about the mid-90s, over 50% were just shopping domestic exclusively, 30% were both, and about 20% were shopping imports exclusively. Fast forward to the mid-2000s, roughly about 2005 or so, and it it flipped. It totally inverted, where only about 30% were shopping domestic only. About another 20% were shopping both and 50% were shopping import only. And again, these are directional numbers, but you get the idea. Talking to the strategist at Ford at the time, he felt that it'd be good 10 to 20 years before the domestics could get back to where they were in the mid-1990s. The reasoning behind this was that imports at the time were the socially accepted purchase. Domestics were not. So if you look at some Ford research, for example, and let's say specifically in the smile states of California, the southern states in the east, what would occur is somebody may buy a Ford Fusion. It'd be in their driveway, let's say in Sacramento. Neighbor would go, hey, you bought a Ford. Why did you buy a Ford? Why don't you buy an import? The number one response was, I got a great deal. And this really is not what you want as a brand, that you're a a deal brand or a concession purchase. So a lot of thought was being put around, how do we resurrect Ford? How do we do that? And then the Great Recession hit and something wonderful happened for Ford, believe it or not. They didn't take the money. They did not take the government money. At the time, we were tracking social and it was declining for Ford. The minute they didn't take the money, the curve switch started going up. The trajectory changed. Also, the sentiment became changed. It wasn't overnight. It took some time. Before built on that. After not taking the money, they did things like the Fiesta Movement. They did other social programs outside of advertising to engage people, to influence those. And it was really fascinating watching this and being a part of this during this time period. Looking at this, what occurred to me, there was something interesting going on here with social. And I developed an idea called the Social Triangle on how social truly affects us within our social circle. Most brands have one, and typically, you'll have this social triangle if you're a considered brand, because there's more social impact on the purchase process. There's three types of influencers in our social circle. So, you know, think about this as I go through this. The first one is customers we know. These are people who have bought the product and often will ask them, well, what do you think of it? What are your likes and dislikes and stuff like that? The second influencer is experts we trust. I have in my social circle, I have people who are tech enthusiasts, I have people who are automotive enthusiasts, I have people who are foodies, who when I usually am looking to buy a product, I may lean into them for their advice because they live that passion, they live that category, and they can offer me great advice. The third influencer is the brand governor. And be very afraid of the brand governor because this person has no experience this person typically is not eligible but they have an overt opinion that will often dictate people's purchases so for example back to automotive a little bit I was talking to this woman about her purchase and it was sort of the inversion of that whole diagram I told you up front so she lived in Detroit and she really wanted to buy an import but she also knew her dad worked for the UAW so she had a choice she could buy the import and every time she saw her father she would actually get grief from him or she could avoid the grief and just buy a domestic vehicle. She chose to buy a domestic vehicle. And this is where it's this example sort of like the brand governor is that adversary out there that has nothing to stand on. And I found this this brand governor exists obviously in automotive, but in many major purchases like travel, like um, tech, people have biases. And many times those biases have nothing to do with expertise or experience. So just to bring this concept to life, let me wrap this up by just sort of going through this. I want you to think about the following questions within your social circle. Is Trader Joe's or Whole Foods more acceptable than Walmart or Dollar General? Is a trip to Las Vegas more acceptable than one to in Missouri? Is it more acceptable to purchase Toyota, Nissan or Chevy? Is buying shoes from Zappos, DSW, or Shoe Carnival more acceptable? Or is the store irrelevant and a shoe brand like Anne Klein or Nine West more important? This sort of gives you an idea of, if you look at different brands within a category, which ones do you feel that you want to buy? And by the way, and this is really interesting, which ones do you feel if you bought, you would get grief from your social circle? Well, that wraps up the highlights from the second part of the book. I have two more episodes after this, The next one is called Don't Paddle Upstream, and I really take a look at the whys in particular and how how current marketing tactics work or don't work based on these primal motivations we have. Also, in the last episode, I'll be looking at how to activate these ideas and some methods, some approaches that will help you to bring these ideas to life to improve your marketing. That wraps up this episode. First of all, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to subscribe to future podcasts on primalshopper.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast service like iTunes, Anchor, or Google. Also, if you're looking to apply Primal Shopper to your marketing, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd be happy to answer any questions you may have. Well, that's it for now. Until next time, this is Eric Bow on the Primal Shopper Podcast.